0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. As the holiday season approaches and 2014 comes to an end, I'd like to sincerely thank you and the many thousands of EM Cases listeners worldwide like you for listening, for your emails, your tweets, your Facebook comments, and your general support. There's a lot of individuals in particular that I'd like to thank at this time. First, there's my amazing EM Cases team that works so hard to bring you the written summaries and blog posts and the upcoming ebooks that are going to be released soon. Kirat Graywall, Lucas Chartier, Michael Killian, Taryn Lloyd, Eric Kanha, Claire Heslop, and Niran Argantaru. I really want to thank you all. I also want to thank my advisory board for their words of wisdom and their support, Joel Yaffe, John Foote, Kaldeep Sidhu, Eric Litovsky, Shirley Lee, Rick Pensener, Walter Himmel, and Sanjay Mehta as well as the EMK's SimCast team, Sev Perlman, Andrew Petrosoniak, and Chris Hicks, who have been working with me on the upcoming SimCast educational video series that will be released in a few months. I want to thank Teresa Chen, my co host on the Journal Jam podcast, for her amazing educational mind and her friendship, as well as Michelle Lin for the fruitful collaborations that we've started in 2014. And of course, I want to thank the incredible guest experts that I've had the honor to work with on the show over the years, which total more than 60 brilliant minds in emergency medicine. I can't believe that since its an inception almost five years ago, EM Cases has grown into this sort of educational institution. With more than twenty five thousand downloads of podcasts each month, and EM cases just wouldn't be what it is today without the incredible support of the folks at Sremi, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's Bug Borgenvog, Shelley McLeod, Shirley Lee, Rick Pencener, and Howard Evans. That's the nonprofit academic institute whose mission is to improve EM research and education in Canada. Oh, and I can't forget to thank the folks at Trek. That's Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids, the nonprofit Canadian organization whose mission is to disseminate pediatric EM knowledge to community EDs, who've been a great help in sourcing the brightest minds in pediatric EM and disseminating the EM Cases podcast. Now, I hope I didn't forget anyone. I got to say that I do feel like the luckiest guy in the world to be doing what I'm doing on EM Cases. So again, thank you to everyone. So now getting on to business. The last podcast of 2014, we have the one and only father of EM clinical decision rules from the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute, Dr. Ian Steele, talking about one of his favorite topics, atrial fibrillation. Now, before you listen to the podcast, I do suggest that you listen to episode 20, which covers all the basics, the ins and outs, pearls and pitfalls of atrial fibrillation up to 2012. In this podcast, we'll be updating you on the newest on AFib and getting the opinion of one of the most influential researchers of our time on the subject. So without further ado, here's Dr. Ian Steele on AFib. As if it's not awesome enough that Ian Steele took time out of his busy schedule to record a podcast for EM cases on clinical decision rules and risk scales, he also agreed to a podcast on one of his favorite EM subjects, atrial fibrillation. And it's incredibly timely, as brand new guidelines have recently been published, one by the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, with Dr. Steele as the only EM author, and the other by the American Heart Association. So it's my pleasure and honor to have Dr. Steele back on EM cases. Welcome, Dr. Steele. Thank you, Anton. It is great to be back. Fantastic. Now, the first topic I'd like to tackle in this atrial fibrillation podcast is the age-old question of rate control versus rhythm control. Now, the landmark affirm trial from way back in 2002 was an RCT with more than 4,000 patients that showed no significant difference between rhythm control and rate control for AFib in terms of morbidity or quality of life. So Dr. Steele, what do the Canadian guidelines recommend in terms of rate versus rhythm control and what's your take on this long debated issue?
1: So the uh, affirm trial is over 10 years old and it never did apply to emergency medicine patients. So very few ED patients with AF less than 48 hours were in that trial and I've discussed it at length with the the lead author George Weiss from Calgary. Most of these were patients that had been in AF for a much longer period of time. So the affirm results really have no bearing on patients with recent onset atrial fibrillation. That said, we know that when we see a patient in the ED with recent onset atrial fibrillation or flutter, that we have the option of just slowing them down and sending them home on oral anticoagulants, or we have the option of cardioverting them back into sinus rhythm. And the latter is typically what most Canadian eMERGE docs are doing in this day and age. According to the CCS, either one is fine, and it boils down to patient and physician preference.
0: And my understanding is that the new American guidelines are emphasizing rhythm control over rate control because of some evidence that quality of life is better with rhythm control and that rhythm control prevents the atrial remodeling that eventually develops the longer you're in AFib, which increases the likelihood that the patient will evolve from a paroxysmal AFib patient into a permanent AFib patient, which we want to avoid. What's your take on this idea of atrial remodeling as a reason to favor rhythm control? And what's your take on the American guidelines on this issue? Do you think they're on the right track?
1: Well, they're coming around, actually. Their thinking is evolving in that they're not so sure that leaving patients in atrial fibrillation is better for them. And I think that it can be extrapolated to what we do to the patients that we see who have just gone into atrial fibrillation in in the last 48 hours that it is easier to get them back into normal sinus rhythm the sooner you cardiovert them rather than waiting, you know, many months. Okay, Dr.
0: Steele, so that's a little bit about the controversy between rate control and rhythm control. Let's move on to chemical cardioversion. You know, chemical cardioversion is one option for patients who are hemodynamically stable with AFib for less than 48 hours or who have been adequately anticoagulated for three weeks. There are many medication options. There's fleconide, ibutylide, amiodarone, the so-called pill-in-the-pocket, propafenone, and procainamide, which was used in your famous Ottawa aggressive protocol study. In 2014, what do you recommend for chemical cardioversion of AFib in the ED, or should we not bother with chemical cardioversion and go directly to electrical cardioversion?
1: first question is should you go straight to shock or, or try a drug first? And there's clearly clinical equipoise across the country. We've noticed in our studies and surveys that half the doctors prefer to go straight to shock and half prefer to try a drug such as procainamide first. And I think both camps can't claim that there's really strong evidence supporting their preference over the other. So to some degree, the right answer is physician and patient preference. Uh, that said, we are conducting a randomized controlled trial based in Ottawa to compare the two regimens, so hopefully we'll have better evidence to support one or the other approach uh, in the near future. What drug if you're going for a chemical? So in Canada, unlike Europe, we have very few IV choices. It's basically IV, uh, procainamide, or uh, ibutylide. And I, we don't consider amiodarone uh, an effective drug for cardioversion, so uh, we don't even list it, although I see it being used uh, in CCU and ICU. Uh, we don't think uh, IV amiodarone is a drug to be chosen in the ED. Ibutilide has a small risk of to a side of the point, so locally in Ottawa we've tended to avoid that and, and was stuck to procainamide, which has been tried and true for over 50 years. But it only works 50 to 60% of the time. The oral agents are slow. And if your listeners are like me, I don't want to wait around for six to eight hours for the patient to take their propafenone and and eventually convert. Propafenone, if the patient's never taken it before, has to be first administered in the ED where they're monitored for many hours in case they run into a malignant arrhythmia. So, Again, I don't think propafenone for our patients is is really a great option unless you're like super patient. So it sounds like procainamide
0: is your go-to medication for chemical cardioversion of patients with AFib for less than forty-eight hours or who have been anticoagulated adequately for three weeks. Has anything changed, Dr. Steele, in the way we use procainamide or the way we should use procainamide in the ED since the Ottawa aggressive protocol studies were done a while
1: back? The only thing that's different is that now we're giving it much more aggressively. We give it over 30 minutes instead of an hour. And instead of a lower dose, we give a weight-based dose of 15 milligrams per kilogramme. So we're, we, we run in more quickly, more aggressively, so you'll know sooner if it's going to work or not, and you can then move on to shock if, if that's your choice.
0: Okay, and with this more aggressive protocol, Dr. Steele, have you noticed any increased incidence of hypotension, shock, and prolonged QT, torsade? any of the usual side effects of procainamide? Have you found that with the more aggressive protocol that you've been using?
1: No. I mean, uh, actually, to tell you the truth, we put it in 500 of saline, so they're getting a mini bolus at the same time. So the most common side effect is definitely transient hypotension, which usually reverts after uh, holding the drug for 15 minutes and giving a, a small bolus of, of fluid. But otherwise, it's a very safe drug, and you'll uh, hardly ever see arrhythmias associated with its use. Okay, and I understand that procainamide
0: is one of the few antiarrhythmics that is safe in atrial fibrillation associated with Wolf-Parkinson-White, right? That's right. Okay, great.
1: It's a great drug, but it's 50 years old, so the drug companies don't care about it. It's not promoted, but it is quite safe for a variety of things. It even works for VTAC.
0: Great. Okay, let's move on then to the question of anticoagulation for stroke prevention, which right. which patients with afib or a flutter require anticoagulation i mean i understand that the newest canadian guidelines take a bit of a chad's 2 score and a bit of the chad's vas score and combine them into this new simplified tool that they call the canadian cardiovascular society or css algorithm for oral anticoagulation therapy in afib we'll have this algorithm on the em website But first, can you explain to our listeners how the new algorithm works and why it's recommended in the guidelines?
1: Okay, so many members on the panel wanted to call this CHAD-65, and that's really all you need to know. However, for whatever reason, they called it a CCS algorithm. So basically, if you have a traditional CHAD score of one or more, or you're age 65 or more, then you're going to need oral anticoagulation. So it's that simple, just CHAD-65. From the vast CHAD's vast thing, if you have a history of coronary artery disease or arterial vascular disease and, and none of the other factors, then they recommend aspirin. And otherwise, if you're under 65 with no comorbidity whatsoever, you don't need to be put on an anticoagulant or aspirin.
0: Okay. Well, that makes it pretty simple. I understand that the American guidelines recommend using the CHADS-VASc score. We'll have that on the blog post as well so that people can compare.
1: Yes. The Canadians, a whole large group evaluated all the evidence and they don't think the female part of the CHADS-VASc score changes the risk. So that's why they're not using CHADS-VASc.
0: Got it okay the The next thing i'd like to ask about anticoagulation is which patients require being started on anticoagulation in the e d as opposed to letting whoever's going to follow up with the patient as an outpatient decide about anticoagulation
1: so this is the crux of the new guidelines, and they're quite aggressive and potentially could have a lot of impact on how we all practice. Because I think in the past, we've been pretty easygoing about stroke prophylaxis. and We don't like prescribing oral anticoagulants. So we tend to just say, well, go see your doctor. Canadian Cardiovascular Society thinks that is not good enough. And they want us as eMERGE docs, if we cardiovert somebody who has CHAD-65, any one of those factors to start an oral anticoagulant before they leave in that they're shifting some responsibility to ourselves. And they actually prefer NOACs over a traditional warfarin, but there's some patients for whom warfarin is better, which then means you've got to arrange for INR monitoring. So a lot of us have not prescribed a lot of NOACs in the past, but it's probably time that, we all learn to prescribe at least one of them. Like pick pick one you like, and then learn how to use it.
0: So there's some things we have to take into consideration, like whether the patient has renal failure or not, because then the NOAC would not be a good choice. Is there a specific anticoagulation of choice for stroke prevention in AFib in particular? Of all the NOACs, I mean, there's this new adoxaben, there's dabigatran, the rivaroxaban, apixaban. Is it just the one that you're most comfortable with, or what would you say? Does that the evidence shows in terms of the best one?
1: They they're not picking a best one, but they certainly give some a very more detailed explanation of when you know, as you said, age would affect dosage, renal function would affect dosage or choice, and. If people have time to read the the latest guideline update from 2014, it'd probably be the best way to help them choose one. For atrial fib, you cannot make a simple blanket statement that one of the NOACs is better than the others.
0: Okay. And what about the not-so-uncommon situation in which the patient requires anticoagulation with an oral anticoagulant according to the algorithm but actually refuses treatment? What do what do you what would you recommend we do in those situations where they just don't want to take an anticoagulant?
1: You mean that all our charm and persuasion doesn't work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have patients that don't listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's a it's a complicated issue, and I think traditionally we prefer to leave it to the the family doctor or, or cardiologist who's going to follow the patient for a long time. But now we're being asked to take on that responsibility of at least starting it. So if they refuse, then your only recourse is to really encourage them to see their regular doctor, but at least put them on aspirin in the meantime. And I might just add then, so what are the barriers to them taking an oral anticoagulant? Well, if it's a NOAC, they don't have to worry about INR monitoring anymore, which is a big plus. The downside is that it's expensive, Those drugs are all very expensive, which is fine if you have private uh, drug coverage. If you're covered by your provincial plan, they all have a restriction that you have to make a case that INR monitoring is not feasible for this patient or that they have tried warfarin and it's failed. So there are definitely financial barriers to going with the NOACs, but otherwise they'd be much simpler to use. And they have the added bonus, actually, that they take effect same day.
0: Right, yeah. My understanding is that it only takes a couple of hours, for example, for dabigatran to start working.
1: That's right. So if you have a more risky patient, say an unstable patient where you're forced to cardiovert them and they were more than 48 hours, that... If you can get a NOAC into them, you can almost skip the idea of bridging heparin.
0: Right. Interesting. Okay. So this is all very new. The next question I have for you, Dr. Steele, is which patients who present to the ED and rapid AFib who are unstable do not require emergent or urgent cardioversion?
1: Yeah. So this is a big deal. And I did a tiny blog on this a few weeks back and tweeted about it, is that... Atrial fibrillation, a recent onset, rarely causes the patient to be unstable. It can happen, uh, and the patient may be uh, having a STEMI or florid uh, ACS or be hypotensive or florid pulmonary edema. However, you've got to be super careful there because it's a lot more likely that that patient has rapid AFib, which is secondary to something else going on such as sepsis or bleeding and these are patients who are in permanent af and now have gone sped up and are going at a much faster rate because of some other issue going on so this is very important because if they're in permanent af and you attempt to sedate and shock them you're just going to make them worse you will not succeed in cardioverting them and you've possibly added to their morbidity by sedating and lying them down so this is, can be challenging. You know, some guy comes in and he's in pulmonary edema and can't really talk. You've got to figure out by talking to his spouse or looking in their records or clues by the fact he's already on warfarin, you know. That kind of thing to try and guide you to whether this is new onset atrial fib or just his regular atrial fib aggravated by some other condition. Absolutely. Uh, so you, you, you've got to be cautious there. And it may be that you, while you're trying to, if you really can't tell, you may want to just try to slow them down. There is a clue, though, a, a tip or a pearl even that I have learned from uh, my colleagues on the Canadian Cardiovascular Society. So if you want a rule of thumb about this, if the rate is 150 or higher, it's more likely to be primary arrhythmia. And if it's less than 150, say 130, it's more likely to be secondary tachyarrhythmia.
0: Well, that's a good, nice pearl. That's not going to be 100%, but it's a good guideline. Right. Now, in Canada, we tend to discharge most of the patients that present to the emergency department with new AFib. In the U.S., they do as well, but maybe not at quite as high a rate as we do, which patients who do present to the ED with AFib are safe to discharge from the emergency department and which patients should we be considering for admission?
1: So in our study, uh, 660 cases seen in Ottawa, we, we we discharged 97% of patients actually and I think that's not uncommon The main reasons you would have to admit somebody if they were unstable in that they, say, had ongoing heart failure or they had evidence of ACS with chest pain and uh, ECG or troponin changes. But most uh, everybody else, uh, and sometimes you just cannot get the rate down.
0: Actually, that brings up the the question of which patients who present with AFib should have a troponin in the first place, because a lot of these patients will have kind of a little bump in their high-sensitivity troponin, and it's kind of hard to know what to do with them. Uh You know, do we need to be ordering troponins on all patients who present with new AFib? Um, how do you deal with the results of a slightly elevated high-sensitivity troponin?
1: You're right. So my, I deal with it by not ordering it. So I'd say it's a very small minority of patients where I would consider ordering a troponin and that would be if they had more than just chest discomfort but actual pain or they clearly are showing some ST depression on the ECG or something else, uh, you know, about their hemodynamics, maybe some hypotension and they're older or have known coronary artery disease that would worry you, then of course some troponins are required. Uh, But as you say, they may be slightly up and our cardiologists here just don't even want to hear about slight rise in troponin. So we're pretty selective. I don't think it should be routine by any means.
0: Okay. And then in terms of sending the patient home, I understand that the recurrence rate of AFib is very high. And let's say you've cardioverted a patient in the ED, you've decided to send them home, Is there any value in prescribing an antiarrhythmic medication so that the patient doesn't bounce back again with AFib the next day or a few days later?
1: Well, unfortunately, there's no safe and effective drugs to prevent recurrence. So the answer is no. I would say that it should be very rare that we're prescribing anything. Uh, Amiodarone was out of favor for a while, but now it's back in favor as the most effective preventative drug, but it has serious toxicity and risk of pulmonary fibrosis. So I don't think that's a drug uh, that we would be prescribing for our patients.
0: Okay. And then I have one sort of bonus question, Dr. Steele, that uh, Claire Atsuma, who you know, who's who was our guest expert on the EM cases atrial fibrillation episode that we did a year or two back, Uh, And she's an accomplished AFib researcher as well. She asks, based on the JAK study by the Finnish group entitled Thromboembolic Complications After Cardioversion of Acute Atrial Fibrillation, the Finnish cardioversion study, is it safe to cardiovert all non-high-risk AF patients who have it for less than 48 hours? For instance, what if these patients have some of the risk factors that are identified in that studied, like heart failure, old age, diabetes, vascular disease, or are on ASA or clopidogrel?
1: Okay, that's an excellent question, and it's such a good question that I put it to the panel, the CCS panel, and I got a whole... of answers from them. So I can tell you that we have a a commentary being published uh, early in the new year in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology on this very question. Uh, Myself uh, and two cardiologists have written it in in trying to address the study, the finished study, which they followed thousands of patients over a 10-year period, and they followed all the patients that were not put on oral anticoagulants and they found that overall the rate of stroke in 30 days was about 0.7%. So it does occur. It's not unheard of. So these are patients less than 48 hours. And that those that had the stroke typically had one of the CHADS risk factors. So that puts their risk up above zero. And that is possibly one reason that we're now recommending that you start patients on NOACs. There was a second paper that suggested that it was safer to cardiovert people less than 12 hours than, than between 12 and 48 hours. And that, of course, uh, concerns eMERGE docs quite a bit. The panel decided that that data is not good enough to change practice at, at all. And in this article that will be coming out uh, early in the new year will kind of review the arguments uh, against changing the 48-hour rule. So that uh, hopefully will be published in uh, January or February in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology. So when it does come out, I'll try my best to circulate it out amongst the emergency medicine community. So it's a really good question. Okay, so suffice to say for now, we
0: should be sticking with the 48-hour rule that we've been doing for years. Exactly. Okay, great. Now, one last thing before we go, Dr. Steele. Dr. Anand Swami Nathan, otherwise known as Swami, emailed me with, with some comments about the CDR podcast that we just recorded together and released, along with the survey. Swami had some comments to say about how they view CDRs and also atrial fibrillation in the US. So I'll post that along with this podcast, and uh, I'd like to hear what your reaction is, is to it. You know, in the CDR podcast, we had talked about some of the differences between how the U.S. practice and how the Canadians practice. Some of the barriers to using the CDRs uh, depend on where you practice. So we'll get to hear from Swami to get an American perspective on the use of CDRs as well.
1: Yeah, no, that's terrific. Uh, I love talking about this stuff, both topics, CDRs and atrial fibrillation, with my U.S. colleagues uh, because, as you say, and we did say that their practice uh, seems to be a lot different from Canadians. I'm looking forward to seeing his comments. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Steele. It was an absolute pleasure again.
0: Unfortunately, this time Hans Rosenberg couldn't join us but that was some really valuable, informative stuff about atrial fibrillation that we just discussed. And I do encourage everyone to go and read both the Canadian and the American guidelines, although the American guidelines, I believe, are 123 pages, so a little bit hard to get through. And I certainly look forward to the next time I see a patient in the emergency department with AFib. So thanks again, Dr. Steele.
1: Thank you very much, Anton. Definitely my pleasure.
0: And thanks to all the folks for filling out the surveys for this podcast and the CDR podcast. We'll hopefully have those results published soon. So until next time, in 2015, take it easy.